right. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning, Highland Community Church. It's a joy to be with all of you today to share uh, in our study of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, uh, looking at verses 23 through 35. So you can begin making your way there. And uh, before we spend some time looking through what God has for us to hear uh, through this text, let's just pray, ask the Lord to be with us, to open up our hearts uh, to hear, receive, and learn, grow from His Word. Father, uh, thanks so much for an opportunity to, to gather uh, in this place today to worship, to lift high uh, the name of Christ. And, and Lord, as we now uh, transition, as we worship through the Word, open up our hearts, Lord. Uh, allow Your Word to penetrate deep inside of us, Lord, that we might grow more into the image of Jesus and those who may not have a relationship with Christ, Lord. May the Holy Spirit grip their heart. May, may we just life change happen. May they trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So be with us, God, over the next few moments. Again, open up our hearts. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. You know, as we look at Acts chapter 4, continue looking at Acts chapter 4, we're going to notice that one of the main themes in our text today is the theme of unity. And you'll see it actually spelled out in a few different ways. It'll say, one voice and one heart, or one heart and soul, all things in common. Those are a few phrases that we see uh, throughout our text. And, and so we're going to be spending a lot of our time talking about this idea of unity. Unity is an interesting thing to me. I think it's one of those themes, one of those ideas that is often underestimated and maybe overlooked at times. I mean, I think sometimes we don't even know something is unified until it isn't, until it's disunified. Let me share an example. Let's go back to 2013. This is week 17 of the NFL season. This is where the Bears, the Chicago Bears, and the Green Bay Packers are playing each other to see who would win the division and ultimately go on to the playoffs. Let's just set the scene for a second. The Bears are up 28-27. Let me just take a time out. Let me just share. I'm coming from the perspective of a Bears fan. So you might hear a little bit of bitterness in my heart as I'm sharing this. But the Bears are up 28-27. There's 46 seconds left in the game. Green Bay has the ball. It's fourth down and eight, somewhere around the 30-yard line. Bears have one of the best defenses in the league this year. I'm feeling pretty good as a Bears fan. Like, even if Green Bay gets the first down, time is winding off the clock, it's going to be a really tall task for them to, to score, whether it's a field goal or a touchdown. I'm feeling really good. But what happens next, still to this day, pains me, and I even have to share this, it's, it hurts. So Rodgers gets under center, he rolls out of the pocket. He finds Randall Cobb wide open, wide open, no one within 15 yards of him. Easy pitch and catch. Randall Cobb goes in for the touchdown. Packers win. Another Bears friend is depressed, and he hits the floor one more time. <laughs> what, well, what happened? Well, later we find out, we didn't know exactly at that moment, later we find out that Chris Conti, the one of the defensive backs for the Bears, was not lined up in the right position. He had either misheard what the call was or he had forgotten. There was a lot of confusion that happened. He lined up in the wrong spot. And so where he was lined up, he just let Randall Cobb go by him, 10 yards behind him, easy pitch and catch. That defense, that, that solid unit that had played so well throughout the whole season, in that one moment was completely disunified. We didn't realize it until, you know, it, the, the disaster happened. Another Bears fan bites the dust. Right? That's, that's disunity. Oftentimes we overlook it. It's underestimated. We don't see it until it's gone. 
And certainly unity is important on a football team. I think it's important in a church as well. And as we look at our text, we're going to see just how unified this church is. We're going to look at this from a few different perspectives. But let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and let's read our text together. And and notice as we're reading the, the different places that it talks about this idea of unity. We're going to start in verse 23. When they were released, this is talking about Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, now they go into quoting Psalm chapter 2 here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." So again, as we think about our text today, I want to look at three aspects of unity that we see recorded. First, I want to talk about unity in suffering or unity in difficulties and trials, difficult roles. See unity in that. And then I want to talk a little bit about unity in our worship or unity in theology. We see a wonderful example of this in our text And then finally, we're going to finish with unity in our sacrifice or unity in our generosity. Let's first look at unity and suffering. So we first pick up in our text after Peter and John are being released from the custody of the authorities mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. Remember, heat was placed on them as they healed the crippled man at the, the gate. And, and, and Pastor Jeff preached this last week. But we see that they, they brought them into some sort of trial. And they were questioning them. And, and, it was a, and it was an intense moment for these men. And there were many, if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, that were actually annoyed or frustrated at the teachings of Peter and John, but in verse 4 says that many were coming to the gospel. So this was an intense time. Uh, they were under this trial, and, and they, were, they were just so bold in how they proclaimed the gospel in the midst of really difficult times. And so in verse 23, it's continuing that narrative of what happened after Peter and John were released from this trial. And I think what happens next is really quite remarkable. It's truly amazing. See, rather than hanging their heads or getting discouraged because the road is starting to get a bit tough, notice that 
this church, this group of people, they begin to pray. Right? They begin to, they begin to, to just acknowledge that, hey, the road is tough. We need to stick together here. They're united together, and they're going to endure suffering for the name of Christ together. Notice how they start in verse number 24. And when they heard it, heard the report of Peter and John, what did they do? They lifted their voice together to God. What a wonderful way to respond to suffering. They lifted their voices together to God. The Greek word here is homothumadon. It means to be of one mind, meaning there was a single unified response. And let's notice this. How, how did they first respond when they heard the news of Peter and John's trial? Well, first of all, they came together. That's the first way we see them responding and unifying in their suffering as they came together. Notice it says that Peter and John went to their friends. I think this is a wonderful example for us to see and for us to learn. See, the reason I think this is such a big deal is because when things get tough, the, the, the temptation to want to isolate is a real temptation. But we weren't designed to go through suffering on our own. We need the friends in our local church, in our Christian communities to come around us and surround us and help us through these things. And, and these church individuals, this church family was praying together. This is one of the delightful blessings of being a part of a church family, that we have people coming around us to surround us and help us through. Now, if, if Peter and John were just a dynamic duo rather than being two of a larger body of people, they would have missed out on the privilege of this church crying out to God with them and for them. So I guess the question on the table is, have we enjoyed this part of our church family? where people come around us and surround us, and we have people in our corner, people with us. This is such a critical component. They're unified in their suffering as they come together. A second way we see this church unified in their suffering is in their prayer. They are, they are a praying church. They are a praying people, right? They didn't turn to their own ideas. They didn't turn to the latest self-help book. But rather, they went straight to the one who could give them comfort and strength right in the middle of their trial, right in the middle of their difficulties. Again, this is a blessing of being a part of a local church. Now, there's just something powerful when friends come alongside of you and pray. It's almost like a spiritual jumpstart. Think about a battery. How do you recharge or re-energize a lifeless battery? You have to connect it to a full battery with the jumper cables, right? You turn the cars on and, and somehow scientifically the, the current flows to the dead battery and boom, it's restarted, it's recharged, it's ready to go. I think prayer is a lot like that. It's like a spiritual jumpstart. We can be connected to the body of Christ and it just re-energizes us spiritually. Let me just encourage us, if, if we are going through a difficult time, let's take advantage of the blessing and benefit of the local church family and let them recharge our batteries. Let's cry out to the Lord together with one voice, asking Him to move mightily on our behalf. We see this modeled wonderfully in this church during this time. So they're unified as they came together, they're unified in their prayer. But something that's really fascinating as we see what they begin to pray for, we see something amazing rising to the surface. We see their theology. We see what they believe. We see what came, keeps them anchored and steady in the middle of really difficult and pressing and tumultuous times. We see their theology. Let's just take a deeper dive 
into their theology and see how they were unified in their theology by looking at how they prayed. Notice how their prayer starts in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, this group of people, they mean business, right? They begin swinging for the theological fences right away, immediately addressing God as sovereign. You know, one definition of sovereign is the fact that He, God, is the Lord over creation. And as sovereign, He exercises His rule. This rule is exercised through God's authority as king, his control over all things, and his presence with his covenantal people throughout his creation. Right away, this church is acknowledging, God, you are in charge of everything. You are sovereign. You are supreme ruler. You are supreme authority. There is nothing higher than you. Why is this significant? Well, I think them being united around their theology is significant for three reasons. First of all, we see that we identify what this church's view of God is. They have a very, very high view of God. I'm reminded of what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is either pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low views or thoughts of God. And this church demonstrated they have a very, very high thought or view of God. They recognize that just as he was so careful in, in making the earth and creating what he created, he's, he's even more gracious in how he cares for his people. If God's going to spend so much detail and attention on creation, what does that say about us? And it was their very high view of God that motivated them to pray as they did, oh, sovereign Lord. Oh, sovereign Lord. We see how it motivated them. They have a high view of God. I think the second reason their theology is significant is because they also have a proper view of the authorities or the people who are inflicting the suffering upon them. Rather than casting blame on them for their problems, they find stability in the reality that, God, you're in charge. You are sovereign. You are, you are over all of this and no one else. You see, in moments of suffering, I, I think oftentimes it becomes easy to blame, right? Easy to blame the players involved. Easy to blame the decision makers or the people in authority. It's easy to blame, but it's never helpful. You know, if we were to go back to December of 2013, it was easy for me to blame the, the Chicago Bears head coaches for not having a better scheme. It would have been easy for me and was easy for me to, to blame the, the players for not being lined up in the right spot. It would have been easy for me to blame the team for not giving a lead up that they should have never given up. What was the reality? The reality is Aaron Rodgers and the Packers were better. There's a reason Aaron Rodgers can say to the Chicago Bears, I own you. He's just better. I hate to say it, but he's just better. Blaming is easy, but it's not helpful. And this church sets a wonderful model for how we should see those involved with our suffering. They gave credit to a sovereign God. God, you're in charge. God, you are, you are over the authorities. And so it reminds me of, of a man that I met in India just a few years ago. I was uh, doing some missions work there in 2015. And in the southern part of, of India, I met a man named Samuel. He was our driver for the week. We're in a city called Bangalore. And as, as the week went on and as the few days we were there, actually, I got to know him and I learned that he was a, uh, a believer of Christ who had left a Muslim family. 
And the decision for him to leave that Muslim family cost him dearly. His family actually disowned him. And as he began to share, he was very sad that he did not have a, a, a relationship with his family. It was a very difficult time, a very difficult journey for him to walk. But he said, you know, I'm joyful that I can suffer for the name of Jesus for the betterment of my own family, my own kids. He had two kids at the time that he was leading to love Jesus. He says, I will take the insults, I will take the mean uh, uh, speech towards me so that Christ may be made famous. Now, the authority at that time in his life were his parents. They were sharing all these difficult things, but he said, I trust in a sovereign God above all things. See, the sovereignty of God, it anchors us. It doesn't allow us to cast blame. It says, I'm going to trust God no matter what. I think a third reason their theology is significant is because this church is viewing what happened to them, what happened to Christ as a fulfillment of Scripture. As the church prays, as, as we mentioned, they begin to quote Psalm 2, the first two verses. Let's just read that again. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves as the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, the reason this is such a big deal is that they are acknowledging that just as Jesus suffered, we too are going to suffer. And then they begin to draw some powerful parallels between the second psalm and the prayer they prayed specifically in verses 27 and 28. Let's just read that prayer again. Notice how we see these parallels coming to light. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, it might be easy to miss these, but did you notice what was observed by this church? There are four powerful parallels between Psalm 2 and this prayer in Acts 4. And they're all centered around specific groups of people. First, notice the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage? Well, the question to ask is, who are the nations? This is referring to those who are non-Jews. Or a common phrase in the Bible that is Gentiles. And what do they pray for in Acts? They say that the Gentiles, the nations are against Christ. They stood against Christ. The second parallel we see has to do with the Jews. The psalm mentions the peoples plotting in vain. Uh, This is a reference to the Jewish people. And what do we see in Acts 4? That the peoples of Israel, the Jewish people, gathered together to oppose Jesus. Now, this is significant because this is their own people. This is their family. These are their friends. And they're saying that our Jewish friends and family who have not trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, they are actually enemies of God. They're not worshiping the Lord. They've not placed their faith in the one true God. He's not the Lord of their life. And then third, we see that the the kings of the earth are mentioned in the psalm. The prayer mentions King Herod. And then finally, the, the psalm mentions the rulers of the earth, who's mentioned in our prayer, it's Pontius Pilate. We see that these are just dynamic parallels between the psalm and what has actually taken place. And, and why is this so important? Well, let's just think about this for a second. See, Psalm 2 was written by David, who is known as the suffering servant. But see, this psalm pointed to the reality that that Jesus would suffer for the whole world. The psalm is pointing to the reality of Jesus being the greater David and suffering on the cross to pay for the salvation of all who would believe. 
And this prayer is acknowledging that all of this has been fulfilled in Christ. And he suffered. And just as Christ has suffered, we suffer as well. So this people group, this church, these friends were counting it as a, a great honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's just like my friend Samuel. He counted it an honor. It's difficult. It's hard. We endure certain things, but what an incredible joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. This church is saying, as Christ suffered, we too will suffer. This prayer is truly amazing. But what we see them pray for next reveals how they're actually going to apply their theology. So what we have now is we have confessional theology, what we say we believe about God, and we have functional theology, which says, this is what my life demonstrates I believe about God. The, the two are very different. We see how they're going to apply their theology. They pray for boldness. Listen again what happens in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Again, the authority. We're going to let you deal with them, Lord. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, give us boldness. As the road gets tougher, as the suffering gets more intense, as the trials get a little bit darker and deeper, God, give us boldness. That's functional theology. God, we say that you are sovereign. We believe you are sovereign. We are living like you are sovereign. That's functional versus confessional theology. Now, if you and I were in this position, if we were part of this church, what might we pray for? Lord, please allow this trial to end. Please allow the suffering just to be minimized. Allow peace to be my reality. And sometimes that's a great prayer. But these individuals, this church, they prayed for boldness. Boldness to speak the truth. Why? Because see, in the middle of suffering in the name of Christ, suffering for Christ, the temptation to withdraw was real. The temptation to say, this is difficult, I'm stepping back. This is costing me too much. I'm not entering into this anymore. It was a real temptation. So to combat this, they pray for boldness. What a great lesson for us. See, we may not always walk through the same kind of suffering that this church does, but we will endure suffering at some level. And in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulty, I pray we have the same approach. They, listen, they trusted in the sovereignty of God throughout. May you and I trust in God's sovereignty. God, you're in control. They trusted and worshiped the Lord throughout. May we worship him throughout. They prayed for boldness. And as they were gathered together in unity, they were filled with the Spirit, and the room began to shake. That is a powerful prayer meeting. And prayer is, is critical in moving us through our suffering and revealing what we view about the Lord. This church has a high view of God. And you see, suffering has a way of revealing our theology, doesn't it? It's when the pressures and difficulties of life arise that we see and we understand what we truly believe about God. So the question is, what is our current life situation that is revealing what we believe about God? What is it that is happening in our life that truly expresses what our functional theology is? Are we trusting in God, or perhaps are we trusting in something else? Is our confessional theology and our functional theology, are they lining up, or is our confessional theology say, I believe in God, but our functional theology says, I believe in something different? What does it truly say about us? Think about your life situation. What does our life, what is the situation, what is it that we're doing say we believe about God? 
So up to this point, we've talked about their unity uh, as they suffer together, endure trials together. Interwoven with that, we talk about their theology and how they're unified around a common, uh, common theology, the grace of God, the sovereignty of God. In our last few verses, we're actually going to see how they're together, how they're unified even in their generosity. And notice how our text concludes. It says this, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the uh, proceeds of what they sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, notice it says they were of one heart, one soul. This is unity. And there's a lot to be amazed with this portion of the text. First of all, it says that the full number of them was unified. This phrase, full number, in Greek is plethos, and, and it's referring to the, the great number of individuals who have been a part of the church and have been added to the church since the beginning. Remember, they've had exponential growth, very rapid growth. It's grown to nearly 20,000 at this point in roughly 90 days. Like, in the midst of that exponential growth, in the midst of this dynamic church growth, the reality for division is very, very high. Yet there's wonderful unity, there's plethos, they're of one mind, they're of one heart. I love that there, we see such unity. I think another thing that's happening in the text is it's building a contrast to what is happening in regards of friend circles in the Greco-Roman world. See, in, the, in this idea of friendships, there was this reciprocity that was expected. So, an example would be, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. This was the friendship uh, culture of the day. But what this church is modeling is, I'm going to give, and I'm going to be sacrificial, and I'm going to, to pass my, my, uh, my abundance on to you without expecting anything back in return. See, it's completely countercultural to what, what was happening in the day in friends' circles. I'm just going to give. I expect nothing back. I'm going to give because Jesus wants me to give. Christ has been sacrificial of himself. I'm going to be sacrificial to you. There was a, such, uh, such unity, such blessing, such graciousness amongst their church. I think it's also important to, to note here that this church was, had a deeply rooted kingdom mindset. A deeply rooted kingdom mindset. Everything that they did was to bring glory to God and build up the kingdom of God. So this passage is not giving a position on certain economic ideologies, right? God is king. Kingdom work is the mission. And they are going to allow their passion for Christ to motivate their generosity in which they are totally unified. All things in common, one heart, one soul. And the impact was so great that no one was needed. There was not a needy person among them. That is a great example of generosity, being unified together. This church was on fire. They're making kingdom impact. They are focusing on Christ. They are moving the, the, the mission forward with all joy. So what does this mean for us? How do we take a, a narrative like this and how do we apply it? 
What does this mean for you and I? How do we live this out? Well, let me just share as we conclude just three points of application. One from each point of unity we talked about today. Let's first talk about our theology. First of all, I think we need to identify what our view of God is. Do we have high thoughts of God, a high view of God, or do we have low view of God? Does our functional theology and our confessional theology, do they line up or is there a disconnect? Right? What I say I believe about the Lord and what I actually live in my life, does it line up? So we have to identify what our view of God is. Because this is the lens in which we will view life. It's, it will be our worldview. It will be our perspective. So if we have a negative view in which we view life, maybe we have a low view of God. If we have a, a victimization mentality or view or perspective, maybe we have a low view of God. But I, I believe that there are some of us in the room who have extremely high views of God. You endure suffering well. You endure trials so well. You give credit to the Lord for being sovereign. You worship Him. And, and although suffering is difficult and it's painful and it's, it's hard to go through, many of us in the room have just suffered so well. High thoughts of God impact that. What is our, our view of God? Do we have high or low thoughts about the Lord? Well, then what about suffering? How do we apply this in, in terms of suffering? Well, I think we want to allow suffering to bring us more and more into a loving relationship with Christ. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. This is three times Paul is pleading with the Lord to have this thorn in his flesh removed that it should leave me. But what did God say to Paul? God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is the response that Paul got from the Lord. And Paul says, okay. Therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And for the sake of Christ, and I am content in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul says, okay, hardships are coming. Calamities are coming. Persecutions coming. Insults are coming. I'm going to lean into the power of Christ. I'm going to draw more and more to the reality of I need Jesus in my life. So the suffering that Paul endured motivated him to look to the strength of Christ. I pray that suffering does the same thing for us. Trials do the same thing for us, that we are just motivated that I need Jesus in my life. I want to press into this. I want to seek him. I want Jesus to be the good shepherd that leads me through the deep, dark valleys of life. I pray that suffering leads us more to the image of Christ and then finally, when we think of generosity, let's be known for our gracious generosity. Let's be known to, to be people when needs are there, we seek to meet them. Again, this church was counterculturally generous and it made a major impact in the world. They were known for their kindness to one another. And Jesus says, you want to know how, how people show or know that you love me? By how you love each other. I think we want to love each other. We be generous with one another. Be generous with our world. I pray that our generosity just speaks of our relationship with Christ, speaks to the glory of the Lord. And that if there are, is any that have need, that we are seeking to meet it. If there are those who are hurting, we are seeking to step in and be a blessing to them. And I'm so thankful for the many ways we've seen this in our church and the many ways that, that you have done this as well. What a, what a wonderful testimony 
of the Lord working in your life. I'm so grateful for that. So when it comes to our theology, what's our view of God? When it comes to suffering, are we leaning into a relationship with Christ and generous generosity? Are we being sacrificially generous so that we're making a kingdom impact? Think about how we can grow in these areas over the upcoming weeks, days, or even years. And I pray that we have unity in all these. I pray that our confessional and functional theology are aligned and that it impacts every area of our life. Thank you for how you do this so well. And may the Lord be gracious as we grow in these areas. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, God, for the time to just be in your word, uh, to look at this church and the wonderful things that they modeled so well. Lord, they were unified as they were enduring hardship together and will continue to endure hardship together. I love how they prayed uh, together, surrounding each other with compassion and love and, and recharging one another's spiritual batteries. God, I'm thankful that they had a functional theology that did declare with their lives, with their actions, that you are sovereign. You are more important than anything. God, I pray that our hearts do the same thing. God, I thank you that this church was so generous and gave us a model of generosity with the kingdom in mind, with you in mind, kingdom mission as the focus. God, may the kingdom be our focus as well. Not this earth, not this country, God, but our citizenship primarily is in heaven. God, may our lives reflect that today. Be with us, God, as we uh, finish with a, a worship song, God, in response and reflection. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.